Revolution. I am RJ Thompson, a writer, organizer, and activist with Code Pink's China is Not Our Enemy campaign. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Code Pink's China is Not Our Enemy campaign is focused on preventing a U.S. war on China and resisting narratives that demonize China and spread racism and xenophobia in the process. You can find out how to join us and get involved at codepink.org slash China, or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash China Not Enemy. Thank you for tuning in. On this episode, we will feature a delightful excerpt of Vijay Prashad speaking about the dire need for public anti-war actions from his speech at the Chow Collective and the People's Forum's China and the Left Conference in New York City on September 18th an important conference on challenging U.S. imperialist aggression toward China that was co-sponsored by Code Pink. In the second half of the show, we will feature an interview with Ting's Chok of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Ting's talks with Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans about her research on China's massive campaign to eliminate poverty that has pulled 850 million people in China out of extreme poverty. Speaking of China's efforts to alleviate poverty, Code Pink's China is Not Our Enemy campaign is currently urging PBS to stop censoring Robert Lawrence Kuhn's documentary, Voices from the Frontline, China's War on Poverty. When Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin tried to deliver the thousands of signatures we collected to PBS's headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, they called the cops on us. Now we are urging PBS to meet with us to discuss viewers' concerns of bias and censorship. Go to codepink.org slash callpbs. That is codepink.org slash C-A-L-L-P-B-S. In the news this week, the leaders of the Quad, a strategic anti-China grouping of the US, India, Japan, and Australia met last week. Although the Quad is primarily a strategic military alliance aimed at containing China, this meeting mostly focused on COVID relief, 5G regulations, and cybersecurity. This meeting comes just one month after the Quad held the Malabar naval exercises off the coast of Guam, a pollutinous power projection meant to threaten China and North Korea. Meanwhile, China's ambassador for disarmament affairs, Li Song, has been urging the U.S. to join the 1967 U.N. Resolution on the Prevention of an Arms Race in Space Treaty, or PAROS. The PAROS Treaty builds on other important space treaties by expanding the ban on weapons of mass destruction to include more conventional weapons as well. Since at least 1985, 
the United States has refused to negotiate Paros in the UN Committee for Disarmament. Turning to legislation working its way through Congress, an amendment to the annual National Defense Authorization Act would include Taiwan in RIMPAC, or the Rim of the Pacific War Games, the world's largest international maritime warfare exercises. If passed in the Senate, this would mark the first time Taiwan has been included in these war games. War exercises like Malabar and RIMPAC devastate marine life, pollute and destroy our oceans, and imperil the lives and livelihoods of indigenous communities throughout the Pacific. Here at Code Pink's China is not our enemy campaign, we have been urging Congress to vote no on H.R. 3524, the Ensuring American Global Leadership and Engagement Act, or EGLE Act. The EGLE Act would allocate over $7 billion to the Department of Defense for war games and military training that push us closer to global conflicts while destroying the environment, devastating marine life, and poisoning indigenous communities' vital resources like air and water. Go to www.codepink.org slash eagleact, that is E-A-G-L-E-A-C-T, to read and sign our letter to Congress urging them to oppose this dangerous anti-China legislation. Now we are going to hear excerpts from Vijay Prashad at the China and the Left Conference. Vijay examines the way racism and Orientalism limit Western understandings of various Chinese perspectives, including aspects of socialism in China. Years ago, in 2011, 10 years ago, Chen Enfu, who was then a senior scholar at the Chinese Academy of Advanced Studies in Beijing, Chen Enfu came to India. He gave a lecture in Trivandrum about the seven schools of thought in China. It was so interesting, you know, I, I had no idea that there were seven schools of thought in China. Because, you know, you, I, there's a kind of incipient ignorance that people have about places like China. You, you just think of China, you know, we talk of China, like it's like the bog, you know, it's like the Chinese, the China, the China does this in China. It's 1.4 billion people, guys. Do you know how many people that is? Do you know what the population of the United States? It's like four times or five times the population of the United States. That's a lot of people. You know, I mean, in the United States, there's a lot of different opinions. There's like post-structuralists and Foucauldians and, you know, and Stalinists and, you know. And oh, sorry, I, I meant, we're talking about the United States. There's liberals and liberals <laughs> and neoliberals and, and conservative liberals and fascistic liberals and Trumpian liberals and, you know, I forgot, yeah. There are many contending schools of thought in the United States, but we somehow assume that in China there's like, there's like Chinese, you know? There's like one, there's like the Mao period, and then there's the Deng period, and everybody's like, Deng, Mao, you know, and like Xi Jinping, you know? It's incredible, right? It's like a racist belief that 1.4 billion people just sort of orient themselves like we are now in the world of this thought everybody march to right isn't that the way isn't that the way people talk about china like am i wrong about this I'm, i mean i'm this is not what i'm saying i'm just channeling what i think people say you know that i, I don't believe that i don't want to be misunderstood because i know social media is a really cruel thing people will say do you know what he said he said all chinese think the same 
somebody's going to take that clip that I just said that and they'll make that a thing, you know. Social media is a really scary thing, right? Right? I am scared of social media uh, because of this, this reason, right? Anyway, so Chen and Fu comes to Trivandrum, which is the capital of Kerala, uh, a state governed by the left democratic front of which there are communist parties and it's an amazing place in the world, 38 million people, you know, they're not all communists, please don't misunderstand that. Um, there's a lot of people with terrible ideas, there's a big debate happening now, because again, everybody from Kerala isn't, we are communist, you know, it's not like that, there's people of different views and so on. Um, so we should never, you know, idealize a place and think, oh, are you from Kerala, you must be a communist. No, it could be a right-wing nut, you know, it's, as much a possibility, right? You meet somebody from China, they might be somebody who, I'm, I'm a Chinese banker, I believe in Adam Smith and, you know, Milton Friedman, and that's, you're as likely to meet a Milton Friedman supporter in China as you are a person who says, I think Mao is a great person and so on. So Chen and Fu said there are seven contending schools of thought. I thought that's fascinating. He said there are liberals, people who think, this is funny, people who think Thomas Jefferson is, the way forward, you know. I was like, I'm not sure even in the, oh well actually in the United States there are a lot of people who think a slave owner like Thomas Jefferson is the way forward, you know. So there are people there and then he said there are, there are revivalists or Maoists, there are um, traditional Marxists and then of course, you know, the way we all do as intellectuals and then there are, there are, there are innovative Marxists like him, um, you know, and, and I like to think of myself as an innovative Marxist. Uh, because who wants to say like, I'm an orthodox Marxist. <laughs> I'm an innovative Marxist and so on. Seven schools of thought, that's interesting. But it's not only that there are many schools of thought in China, that's only one of the issues. The other thing is there have been fierce debates inside China amongst intellectuals, amongst party members. When you have a communist party with hundreds of millions of members, they have tens of millions of opinions in different parts of the country. And there was a terrible decade in the 90s when debate and argument was hard to come by. Because it's not that there was no opinions allowed, because the right of the argument held the high ground. And it's at that point that Wang Hui, this great intellectual, thought seriously about the idea of confidence that a country has in its traditions. Why was Chinese intellectualism or the intellectual class, but also elements of the party, why were they losing faith in their own traditions and looking to Washington DC, New York City, and so on, Harvard University for inspiration? Why were they looking to Thomas Jefferson to lead them forward um, after the 1990s? Why were they doing that? And so he went back and he reconstructed this four-volume text on the history of Chinese thought, but I'm not getting into that. What I want to talk about is that even in this time, the left was trying to engage and find a way to break out of a relative rightward drift in Chinese society. In fact, this rightward drift had been detected by Deng Xiaoping in 1983, when he said, there's a serious problem in our country. The poison of bourgeois thought has come back. This is in 83. Deng Xiaoping had a campaign against the poisons of bourgeois thought. 
You know, Engels, years ago, old Freddie, smartest Marxist, <laughs> smartest Marxist there ever was. I love, you know what's great about Freddie Engels? When he died, he said, cremate me. I like that, that's great. And take my ashes to the beach and throw them into the ocean. There's no grave for Freddie anywhere. You know, he was thrown in, there's a little plaque that says, we came and threw his ashes here. Fred Engels said, before he died, he said, our socialist history is a history of zigzags. Because we're dealing with real people. There are real people involved in socialist construction. And we carry with us the flotsam of confidence, lack of confidence, fear of the unknown. Because socialism is the unknown. We know wretchedness of hierarchy. We know inequality. We know all these things. We know what it's like to be oppressed. We don't know what it's like to be free. And we're scared of freedom. Let's be honest, okay? We're scared of freedom. We're scared of making a revolution. We don't want to make a catastrophic mistake. We allow the drift back to the past to take place so fast. That undertow that pulls you back to the past is really strong. It's not like Deng Xiaoping was like, let's move back to the United States, restore capitalism. How many books I read with that title, Restoration of Capitalism? They were struggling with something, how to build socialism in a wretchedly poor country. That was the assignment. It wasn't easy. Punctually in Chinese history, you've had the Communist Party figure out they made enormous mistakes. What do we think about the Great Leap Forward? May not have been such a great idea. What do we think about the Cultural Revolution? Eh, not sure. What do we think about the 78 reforms? Well, we may have gone too far. Experimentation is an interesting facet of Chinese communism. And I'm just going to give you one example of that and then come to Wang Hui's recent article in Xi Jinping, okay? Okay. I mean, unless you want me to end here and we have questions, because I know, I know there's good questions and so on. You know, when Boshi Lai was in charge of Chongqing, um, it's not about Boshi Lai, by the way. A lot, of made, lot, of, lot is made about this person. It's about what happened in Chongqing. In Chongqing, they decided, let's experiment with you know, bringing back socialist culture, Let's experiment with creating democratic neighborhood organizations. Let's try to create confidence in the masses in the direction of socialism. That was watched very carefully by the left of the party and by left intellectuals. They looked at what was happening in Chongqing carefully. That's not that Bo Lai didn't have his own problems. He may have himself been corrupt and so on. That's not the point, okay? You don't need to personalize these issues. We're talking about the process. The process of the Chongqing experiment. It was a very interesting experiment in trying to develop direct democracy, trying to bring people into the dynamic of history, and not that they feel I'm just a consumer. You know that feeling, like in America? <laughs> well, I don't know what it means to be a citizen. I'm just a consumer. Consumer activism, you ever heard that phrase? Such a strange phrase. I'm a consumer activist. What the hell is that? I'm not a citizen, I'm a consumer. You know, I want my, I, when I pay taxes, I want something back for that. Have you heard that phrase? That's treating citizenship like a consumption agreement, you know? I pay taxes and then I want something back for those taxes. And I don't want lazy people 
to get my taxes for them. Have you heard that argument in the United States? You know, that kind of thing. That reduces the whole concept of citizenship to consumption. I find that very disturbing as a direction of US history. The move of democracy and citizenship into consumption-oriented thinking. You know, I pay taxes, I want, I want this back. I, I need this, and I don't want somebody else to get my taxes. It's a very disturbing understanding of society and so on. It's hard to create citizens in the world because people have to actually learn how to do this thing. It's not intuitive, you know, to be involved. You know how in our neighborhoods and places, it's idealistic people, lefties and so on, who form committees and try to push the government, or it's people on the right, but they're minorities, you know? Most people have a passive relationship to democracy. In Chongqing, the idea was how to revive democratic action, public action. It was an interesting experiment. Xi Jinping watched this very, very carefully. From 2013 onwards, in China, there was an attempt to develop more public action. And actually, what I want to say, I'm coming close to wrapping up, what I want to say is the reason in Wuhan they were able to tackle the COVID virus so rapidly wasn't just because of state action. That's actually a misunderstanding of what they did in China. It's not just state action, it's public action. There were a lot of citizens groups, neighborhood groups and so on that acted to try and track and trace, close the virus down, help people give relief and so on. That's the same reason why in Kerala, the virus rates were so much lower than the rest of India. Because again, public action, women's organization, student organization, youth organization, peasant organization, farmer organization, workers, they were out there, neighborhood to neighborhood, house to house. A 21-year-old, Arya Rajendran, was elected mayor of the largest city in Kerala, Trivandrum. She's 21 years old. The reason she won was she was part of a youth team that went door to door conducting surveys. What is it that you need during the lockdown? How can we help you, etc.? That's how these young people made public action something noble in their society. Noble. You have to ennoble democracy. It's not, it doesn't happen by existing. It has to be made. Democracy has to be produced. It's a lot of hard work. And that's what we see coming out of the current development in China. That's how poverty, absolute poverty was eradicated through the public action process. Recently, Wang Hui wrote an article last year, the same intellectual who wrote during the most difficult time in China when right right-wing thinking was dominant. He wrote, recently wrote an article last year about revolutionary personality, the creation of revolutionary personality. I like that phrase, you know, because in effect, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make everybody into a revolutionary. The point isn't to have you know, like a great leader or a great party or anything. You know, Xi Jinping doesn't walk around saying, it is I, Xi Jinping, <laughs> who saved China from the scourge of COVID-19. <laughs> I mean, the guy doesn't talk like that. You know, it's public action that enables a society to come together to tackle a pandemic. Let's compare what the Chinese did with what India had to succumb to, what the United States succumbed to, 
what the United Kingdom succumbed to. You want to go to war against China, but you yourself couldn't handle the pandemic. You want to go to war against China in the name of a democracy you don't have. What you have is a consumerocracy. You don't have a democracy. Your people don't feel alive to a project. Just when the Chinese feel like they've come alive to a project, you call that life authoritarianism. You call that life authoritarianism. Who puts its journalists in jail? Why is Julian Assange in Belmarsh? Why are so many Indian activists and journalists in jail? Why is the enforcement directorate in India knocking at the door of journalist houses? How easy it is for these countries to sit on some abstract definition of democracy and criticize 1.4 billion people who are in the middle of a giant experiment. Again, I don't expect you to believe anything I said in the second part of my remarks here. I don't even care if you agree with me. But I want you to leave the People's Forum, three years old now. Do you know that? People's Forum just had an anniversary, three years old. I want, you, I want you to leave the People's Forum, the greatest institution in New York City. I want you to leave the People's Forum committed, not to being against the Cold War against China. I, I don't care what you think. I want you to campaign against it. I want you to join, cut the Pentagon. I want you to get involved. It's not enough to believe things, guys. We have to build democracy. The bourgeoisie is not going to donate democracy to you. You have to take democracy. The Soros Foundation isn't going to give you a grant for democracy. You have to seize democracy. You have to seize democracy by acting together. It's called public action. And if anybody needs it, the United States does. So, see you on the streets. Thank you so much to Vijay Prashad. And to our listeners, you can follow Vijay's work at thetricontinental.org or on Twitter at Vijay Prashad. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C. and WBAI in New York City. We will be back after this break with Ting's Chak to learn more about how China has lifted millions of people out of poverty using methods of local leadership that involve public action and direct democracy. Stay tuned.
That was Sade's cover of Why Can't We Live Together, a song originally released in 1972, but one that is unfortunately still relevant to this day, as the lyrics plead, no more war, no more war, no more war. All we want is some peace in this world. Welcome back. I am RJ Thompson, a writer and organizer at Code Pink's China Is Not Our Enemy campaign. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Now we will hear an interview between Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans and Tings Chok, a researcher with the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Tings helped to produce an eye-opening six-part article on China's historic process of poverty reduction, entitled Serve the People, The Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. Now, let's hear from Tings and Jody. How the program works in terms of the basics is, is this, this here. One, one income, two assurances, three guarantees. Um, so what does that mean? So one is like income level. So there is a basic income level um, that has to be met. Um, in China, uh, it uses a, a poverty line that's actually higher than the international standards set by the World Bank, which is $1.90 per day. In China, it's $2.30. But uh, I would say that's not as important as the other aspects, which is the tour assurances and three guarantees. Tour assurances is uh, food and clothing. So that one of the things is, or it's a way to say no worries, that people don't have to worry about basic food and basic clothing. Okay, so uh, you have clothing and you have food. The three guarantees is that um, housing, uh, which comes with electricity and running water, that's one of the requirements. The second guarantee is that there's basic um, medical uh, health care. Uh, and the third is education, um, which is free and compulsory in China for nine years. Um, this is just one of the, the, the places we visited. Um, and how it really works is um, uh, we, people have to go to actually knock on the doors of people uh, and actually find out who, where are the, where, who are the poor people, where do they live, and then what are the plans that need to be made for each and every family. And that, that part is pretty impressive because I mean, the country is huge. Um, you can't just rely on statistics to generalize, okay, this is the percentage of poverty. It doesn't work like that, especially for the, the last pocket, as I mentioned, the, the most difficult pocket of the 100 million people living in extreme poverty. So they actually sent in, in the first year, in 2014, uh, 800,000 members of the party as going to knock on doors to just sur- survey every household. Um, in hundreds of thousands of villages saying, okay, what, are, what is your housing situation? What is your income? Uh, what is your health like? Uh, what's your education? And through that, it was a, uh, the, this 100 million families or how 100 million people was, um, was identified. And then from there, the plans were made in the following years to figure out how, how people were lifted out of poverty. Um, and I want to, this is actually a scene from the film um, from... Uh, uh, from voices from the front line, from Robert Kuhn, is that there's a huge amount of um, grassroots uh, democracy in action that actually happens. It's not just about, you know, party officials or, you know, um, local leaders deciding, okay, this family is poor, this family is not. You actually have to consult and debate and and have these open meetings that they call uh, democratic appraisal meetings, where people sit together, the villagers, and say, okay, my neighbor here, um, you know, he's actually not poor because he's hiding three goats or 
you know, this neighbor here is actually been lifted out of poverty or this neighbor here has, you know, lost a job and is in a difficult uh, condition. So there's a whole process of that that happens and definitely something we don't get, um, you know, to see in Western media. And sometimes I see these images like this, I, I think, oh, I, I can get maybe why this seems threatening to U.S. empire, you know, because it's real democracy in action on the ground um, that we never want to see. Um, or never once shown. Um, and I guess maybe I'll just end this little part with, with this, is that I got to move back to China during, at the end of the COVID pandemic. So it, it is really the, the kind of the strength of this mobilization and organization in the communities that um, um, is, you know, why a campaign like poverty alleviation or why um, the combat to, to, against the, the pandemic has been quite strong. It's really the strength of sending people, you know, that no organization um, is, is strong without its organizers. Like that's the basis, you know, and the people have to be there on the ground and be there in the communities, build trust and do the work. And ultimately um, that's one of the things I think gets lost quite often um, to people who are not in China is understanding that here, you know, the party and the government get huge support, you know, it's mass, a wildly popular party. And, and it almost feels like if you read Buster Mead, it's like the, there's going to be like some sort of up, uproar, upheaval. It's going to be overthrown any moment. It's so dictatorial. It's, it's not. It's people actually in the communities uh, doing the work. And that's what convinces people. Well, maybe you could explain to us what that looks like when you say people in the community doing that work. Who are the people and what do they commit to and what does that work look like? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, that part was probably one of the more, when you asked me what's you know, really impressive or, or shocking uh, about learning is when going to the villages, um, you know, I had mentioned that there were 800,000 people sent to do the household surveys. But after that, there were actually 3 million party members, like cadres that were sent um, to live um, for years at a time in the communities. And that's the, the, real, the real work of, of doing the planning with each family to figure out what's the way to exit poverty. Is it through, um, you know, creating new agricultural co cooperatives where people can be hired in to work on the cooperatives? Is it through, you know, additional education and training, like uh, some sort of technical training to upskill people? Is it through at small percentages to actually move to new homes? Is it renovating the homes that exist, making sure the water is good? It's this level for every family, but that takes people to do. And so uh, these 3 million people um, on average is about one to three years that they live there, um, living in the conditions um, as, as the, the villagers and the peasants do. Um, actually, uh, you know, over a thousand people actually died in the process because the conditions can be quite rough. It's, it's not, um, it's not, I mean, uh, like I mentioned some cliff communities, some communities that are extremely remote, like uh, far away from medical care and that kind of thing. Um, and their job was to, you know, um, basically there's one person, one party member assigned to every family. And then the, these, these um, uh, like party members plus local officials plus community members form resident teams, so teams that live in each village. Um, and there's one team dedicated to each village. Uh, so we met one person, Mr. Liu, he, he was there for already three years when we met him in this village called Danyang, and he was responsible for five families. So basically it's going around uh, visiting families all the time, they're from various ages, um, it's, you know, 
phone buzzing all the time. It could be like a Mr. Zhang saying, hey, you need to come over here immediately. My front door lock is not working. I don't know how to resolve it. Or it's like Mrs. Wong saying, oh, my son's not going to school. Can you come here and talk to him and convince him? It's, um, it's that kind of grain of detail of life that needs to be attended to because ultimately you can't gain trust. You can't, um, you can't um, without, I mean, knowing the people and also helping them resolve their material realities in this daily basis. Um, remembering that these people are being sent to villages of where they, they might not even speak the local dialect. You know, they really want to avoid questions of, you know, uh, maybe you have like local leaders that already have some sort of existing power. They want to avoid questions of corruption. So people are actually sent to where they don't have their kind of social base. They, they're just sent there and go there in the ground, hit the ground running and um, do the work. Um, and then you stay there until, until each family has been lifted out of poverty. Oh, wow. So you're, you're there making it happen. And so you're, the success means you can leave early, early, or you know, the not success is later. That's, that's profound. <laughs> I mean, most of the time there's still, I mean, when we went with Mr. Liu, the program had officially ended and I, I asked him, I was like, why have you not gone home? He, he had to, he has a daughter in, in her teens and she, you know, saw her rarely in those last three years. He's like, well, there's, you know, there's all this follow-up work to make sure people are not falling back into poverty. Like it's not just, okay, now you check the boxes and now it's done. Okay, have a good, good riddance. But you actually have to stay to, you know, maintain the kind of transition um, as well, even though the program has been officially ended. So, oh, so maybe you can talk more about that. Um, that whole idea of um, that it's over. Uh, so what you're saying is that they were successful, and then it's a constant effort because maybe you could talk. You know, how do they keep track? And, and even um, um, Matt Ho was asking, um, when did they send out that 800,000 person um, survey? When was that completed, the consensus? Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, I think on the, the question of falling back into poverty is always a key one, you know. I think that the strength of the Chinese program compared to a lot of poverty alleviation programs around the world is that it wasn't just based on that first aspect, which is income. Like it wasn't a cash transfer program, which we see in many places. It could be a one-off or consistent, you know, transfer of cash. They was actually creating some conditions so that people can, whether it's, you know, yeah, in the, in the countryside, lots of agricultural production, sometimes small-scale manufacturing, maybe even jobs related to, um, you know, ecological restoration, which was a big part, you know, like uh, being forest rangers or tree planters, that kind of thing. So trying to create enough conditions that people can, can be employed or get the education suffic sufficiently so that you can um, um, ensure that, try, you know, or ensure the best conditions that you don't fall back into poverty. That's definitely one of the aspects. If it was just a cash transfer program, once the money runs dry, then what do you do? Um, but that is a thing, especially in the global South world, um, where a lot of the programs have fallen short to think about these multi-dimensional or kind of more systemic factors around poverty and what causes poverty. Um, but now, of course, the, the government is in a, a new phase to really think about now what is relative poverty. You know, um, eliminate extreme poverty is just, a, it's not the end goal, you know, it's just one step 
in a transition to see a society without poverty. Of course, that's the goal, right? So now there's kind of the focus is on, on that. The focus is on how to continue what's called re revitalize the rural um, areas, how to ensure you can modernize our, our agriculture. Uh, how do you continue um, uh, developing in a way that uh, then can continue in this path? Because ultimately, you know, one of the things is even though most Chinese people live in the city, now it's, I think, almost around 60%. It's not a peasant society as it was, you know, a few decade, decades ago, there's still many people in the countryside. And it's a country of 1.4 billion, but it only has 8% of the world's arable land. So the question of how to modernize the countryside, have higher quality um, agricultural development, how to feed the people, you know, food security, huge. So this is part of the whole thinking. Poverty doesn't exist without thinking about um, how you continue on that path. Um, on the question about how many people, uh, when that, when the 800,000 people were sent, it was in 2014 um, when they did that. And that's how they co collected the initial, I think it was about 89 million uh, individuals to know that, okay, that, that list. But then they had to go back and verify and check. And in the end, it was just short of 100 million people. Um, and they created a national database, basically, where this information goes into. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, you know, a lot of the questions in, in China is around the technological development. So they really deployed this and used this in a way so that, you know, different governmental departments can talk to each other. You know, you have to talk between departments when you're thinking about healthcare, you think about education, you think about employment. Uh, you can't get it just stuck in a kind of bureaucratic system, but you need it to, to be able to dialogue. So that system helped with that. It's, um, it's updated frequently because, we, as I said, there's these millions of people on the ground visiting constantly. Uh, so if, if someone has found a job or lost a job or, you know, is sick with um, a, a certain disease, these things are able to be, you know, updated so that, you know, the, the best pl plans can be made and quite a sophisticated system, really. So two questions that kind of go together. How, um, how do you see, like, the, the socialism, um, you know, playing into this? Where, you know, how is this a socialist experience? experiment? But then also, how does... 2,500 years of Chinese culture play into it. Where do those meet, support each other? Um, does that make sense? Um, absolutely. I mean, in a way, um, the struggle against poverty is as long as the history of China. You know, it's always it, it's 5,000 year old civilization, but has experienced you know the question of hunger and the question of you know. Um, how to how to make sure a land, a really big land mass and huge population are living well. And it's, you know, not only just in the last, you know, 150 years of experience under colonialism, which, um, you know, kind of sunk the country into, as I said, uh, when it was founded and PRC was founded, 11th poorest country. We have to remember 150 years before that, China was the biggest economy with a, a third, up to a third of the global GDP. So it went from one of the richest countries to the poorest, and you can only understand that by understanding the history and, uh, and the um, experience of colonialism that plunged the country uh, into that, Espec including you know, during the World War II period. I think in the West, there's a narrative that um, you know, 
the World War II was won by the U.S., but what's forgotten is not only the you know 20 million Soviet uh, soldiers and, and civilians that died, but also 30 million Chinese people who actually died in resisting uh, Japanese fascism and and uh, imperialism on in this country. So it just means that uh, the when the kind of socialist government was established, how difficult the conditions were from the historically inherited conditions, um, but that the principal thing from day one is around uh, eliminating hunger, making sure that the well-being of people is primary. And, and one of the things we look in, in the study um, is how in each phase since 1949, how, what are the main drivers of, of uplifting the, the mass from poverty. But as I said, it's, an, it's, not a, it's not a project that's completed even to today, even if there's a big announcement of ending extreme poverty. It's just a step in this very, very, very long history um, of, of ensuring the well-being of people. Um, not, a, not an easy thing, as, as I mentioned, like till today, 1.4 billion people, 20% uh, of the world population, 8% of the arable land. That's a math that's almost impossible. But these are the big questions for humanity that the experiments, the social experiments here are, are trying to also address. So, um, Tings, how much did this cost? Um, that's, a, that's a lot. And, you know, we're, we spend all our money in the U.S. on the military instead of lifting people out of poverty. Um, what's, what's the bill for this? And, and when you say 100 million people, just to give the audience a sense of how many cities, of, how many places are we talking about? Um, um, no, that's a good question. I actually, I mean, you all know what the military budget is. Um, but in... It was 1.6 trillion uh, yuan, which is the equivalent of about 250 billion U.S. dollars that was spent. Uh, that was from public funds. Um, but then there was almost like uh, almost that equivalent amount that was also uh, spent by the the kind of enterprises, you know, that actually invested that total amount as well. Because a lot of this, I mean, it's not just the party and the government alone. It's very much, you have to mobilize the whole society, all the sectors, you know, civil society, the private sector, public enterprises, you know, students, even the military, you know, how to come together and mobilize the entire society to do this work. Because the party alone can't do it, the government alone can't do it. Um, and so that is another aspect that's quite interesting. But certainly the question of, you know, using public budgets uh, to, you know, uh, erratic extreme poverty versus for bombs on in other countries is, uh, a very topical one, I guess. Um, and how many cities, counties, places? So it was in a total of 128,000 villages uh, and 832 counties. Um, and in total of this, it's like 98.99 million people. So it's massive. It's a it's really massive mobilization. Like it even feels like massive itself isn't a word that's big enough. And um, I part of this was also building roads and putting an in internet is that correct yeah i mean but just even this v video i showed you now i mean that's not possible without ensuring that you have internet electricity and all the infrastructure to make it possible so that's another kind of you know uh cost embedded in this so in the process there were over 1.1 million kilometers of roads built in the rural areas uh, and access was bought, brought to 98% of, uh, internet access was brought to 90% of the um, poor areas as well, um, including like 
25 million homes that were renovated, uh, almost 10 million new homes that were created. So a big part of it is around the question of infrastructure, how to get to um, the areas and that they can uh, also integrate better um, into uh, the whole fabric of society. You know, if you're going to make an agricultural um, project, like a cooperative project succeed, you need to be able to figure out ways, often through internet or online commerce um, platforms, to bring that, those products into the markets, bring it into, you know, people who want to buy, for example, maybe some organic food that is being built, that grown by, uh, um, by peasants in these areas. So all of that is an infrastructural question as well. Um, so, you know, this week we've seen this horrible report on the devastation the planet is going to go through and that we're already in. And you haven't mentioned was um, uh, carbon sequestration or um, dealing with uh, climate chaos uh, woven into this at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really essential question over times. I mean, in, in China, I think there's a recognition, you know, that period of fast economic growth to kind of catch up with um, the industrialized West meant that, like, there was huge costs to the environment, you know, to the air, land, water. Um, there is one of the really impressive things to see, you know, um, we can go more into some of the, you know, international climate commitments and, and China's role in that, but linked back to poverty alleviation, one of the key methods of, of there are five key ones, and I mentioned, you know, like you have to productive um, projects like, you know, starting co-ops or, or agricultural production, and there's education, there's social assistance, there's relocating, I mentioned, but one other key one is called ecological compensation. It's to how to generate work that's linked to ecological conservation and restoration projects, knowing that that is a big question. Uh, and so what's impressive is maybe I can just show, um, I, I know I've told Jody this before, but I think it's quite interesting, is around tree planting. Um, so uh, there's a report that came out by FAO, I think a couple months ago, looking at new leaf, green leaf areas globally. And in the last 30 years, 25% um, of the new forests were actually uh, created here in China. I think it's something that um, it's impressive. I mean, a quarter of the world's new forests of the last 30 years. And some of this is linked to the, the question of poverty. How do you also, you know, people have to do the work of growing those forests and maintaining those forests. And uh, it, it's linked to the program. And also, um, how did this poverty alleviation program contribute to the success with COVID? Um, was it in any way, did it build the infrastructure that was able to be successful? What? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think definitely one of the surprising things is that, okay, the commitment of eradicating extreme poverty um, was, there was an anticipation of COVID. Um, so, you know, by the end of 2019, there were still about 5.51 million people who hadn't been lifted out of poverty from the program. So there was a huge effort to ensure that that um, target was still met despite COVID, which I think is something quite impressive. Um, I don't know enough to say how it added to, probably was more of a, uh, more of a, a, a challenge that was added, but I would I mean, go back to, I mean, here when I, when I got here, um, you know, just to see the community groups um, that are 
organized clearly in the party. Every community has has these uh, neighborhood level committees, and how much the work is done to like make sure that okay at every entrance, um, you know, there's temperature testing. Uh, that uh, that p people are going door to door to make sure um, uh, people have food, water, is anyone sick? And so that kind of um, base organizations are the key to both programs is that, that there are the people there um, knowing each family, knowing each person's condition is the, the core, I would say, of how these programs um, succeeded, like poverty alleviation, but also how when a crisis happens, um, that can be uh, combated uh, in an organized, uh, massive way. Thank you so much, Ting's Chalk. And for our listeners, you can find Ting's work, including the informative article on poverty alleviation, Serve the People, the Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China, at thetricontinental.org slash studies slash. You can also follow Ting's on Twitter at T underscore I-N-G-S. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Code Pink Radio is an energizing program focused on ending wars and militarism and building a peace economy. Listen weekly to robust conversations and inspiration from grassroots peacemakers in places like Korea, Yemen, Venezuela, and Iran. Peacemakers in our nation's capital who are confronting war hawks in the White House and in Congress, and peacemakers in our own communities who are modeling the actions of what a world of peace can look like. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We